Loving Father, please open up our hearts and our minds and our ears uh, to your word. Uh, be at work in our, uh, by your Holy Spirit, please, Heavenly Father. Help us to respond to your word faithfully. Uh, for in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're in uh, Luke chapter 11 today, and we're going to be talking about Jesus' teaching on prayer, and we'll be covering verses 1 to 13. Uh, when I was uh, a young, uh, much younger fella, uh, my mate and I would like to travel out uh, as far west as we could. There's nothing better than getting out of Sydney and uh, going after uh, pigs. And uh, we've on this property, uh, where were we? Somewhere between Ningen and Burke uh, and west of that, main, that road there. East? West. West, yes. And... Uh, one night we just went out for a quiet shoot and we didn't take any supplies, no food, no water and uh, this property was enormous and of course we got lost and we found ourselves cold and a bit worried and uh, uh, we stopped and we took stock of everything and uh, we even stopped to pray and so my mate Scotty and I, we, uh, we prayed and our prayer was pretty simple, dear Lord we are so lost, uh, we need your help. And there's, of course, no signal, no phone reception. I'm not even sure there was phone reception back then. Uh, and uh, it was dark, pitch black. And uh, sure enough, uh, there was a gate, and we decided to go through the gate. And uh, no kidding, 50 metres up the road was our cabin. Now, what is prayer? So we're, in case you missed it, we're only 50 metres away from where we needed to be. Uh, what is prayer? Uh, what is prayer? Is it magical phrases trying to manipulate God, where we use the power that might get God to do what we want him to do? Is that what prayer is? Where we use the right words that unlock the treasure chest, give him a rub like he's this genie? Uh, some people use the prayer of St Jude. The idea is that if you say it three times, three times a day, your trouble will disappear somehow, magically, I don't know. Others, like the atheists uh, Dawkins or Sam Harris, uh, they think the prospect of prayer is laughable. Uh, they would say that Christians are just talking to themselves when they pray. And others might even say, well, it doesn't matter whether God answers your prayer or not, we do it to soothe ourselves. So some people see prayer as talking to oneself just so that you feel better, because, you know, it's, it's as good as self-counselling. I wonder what you think of that. What is Christian about our prayers anyway? Because lots of people pray. But what is Christian about the way we pray? Well, Jesus, of course, is the authority on prayer and he gives us answers here in Luke chapter 11. Notice verse 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. He had a propensity to do that. Jesus was always out and about in the Gospels. You'll always, quite often find the disciples wondering where he went and they've spent a good amount of time looking for him. Uh, you can know that this certain place is somewhere on the road to Jerusalem because this is our context. We're in that part of Luke's Gospel where Jesus is travelling to Jerusalem. And it seems that the disciples now are curious about this habit of Jesus disappearing and praying. And so they ask Jesus for instructions. And maybe we need to be struck here. Maybe we are to see here a development in how people get on with God. 
Maybe that which was normally confined to the temple and the synagogue, maybe Jesus is showing them that, look, we're moving out here, people. It's time you did as well. And maybe with it, the formality changes, the structured liturgy that they would have shared as well. Because repeatedly we're told Jesus is off praying somewhere. And maybe Jesus is taking their relationship beyond the structure of the synagogue and its formalities and modelling a relationship with God they've never seen before. Maybe. I've read a lot of things into the text right there, but it's worth thinking about. But little wonder they ask, well, show us how. Show us how. And so Luke 11, he has three big things to say. Three-point sermon, you beauty, can't go for too long, right? Firstly, verses 2 to 4 offers us a pattern for praying. Look at verse 2. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. It's an abridged version of the one that we find in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Notice it starts with the Father. The perfect Father, the Creator, the Sustainer, with whom they and we have an intimate relationship. Jesus immediately teaches them their concerns. So what are my concerns? My concerns are to be for my Heavenly Father's name, or His reputation for his will, his purpose, and for his kingdom over which he rules. Uh, Last week we were reminded, weren't we, what did St Augustine say? Our highest good is our eternal fellowship with God. And this is where Jesus starts. And we do that uh, with the Father. Here are the terms. God is our Father and we relate to him as his children. Only a child of God will have these as their concerns. Where we say, I want God's will to be done and I want his kingdom to come. Don't you know who my father is? They are to be my chief concerns. And so when we come to our father in prayer, we are praying for his will and his kingdom. Not the will of Adam Draycott, not the kingdom of Adam Draycott, the will of the Father, the kingdom of the Father. It is to say, as first word, Father, it's to say, I am the child in this relationship. Powerful, isn't it? You're the Father and you call the shots. You come first. And this is what Jesus teaches. And so, of course, is this how prayer starts? With this kind of disposition and understanding of the order of things. But the Lord's Prayer is a realistic prayer that is also about our needs. See verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. It's very practical. And we need to be content with God's provision of the basic issues of life. It reminds us that we are dependent on God for such things. But notice the prayer is for the basics, not the elaborate or the luxurious. Notice too that ultimately God is the provider, but also that we have other needs. 
We have spiritual needs like the forgiveness of sin. And of course, that's a dangerous prayer, isn't it? Asking God to forgive our sins just as we forgive others who sin against us. God, please forgive us as we forgive others. You see it? And so there's no space for hard-heartedness and there's no space for bitterness. Lead us not into temptation. We know that one. Uh, How often do we need that? Uh, I pray this prayer regularly and that's the one that screams out to me. Lead us not into temptation. It reminds us that holiness matters. Honouring God with our life matters through our obedience to him. And so here is a pocket pattern of prayer. It starts with our Father's honour. It addresses our physical needs and it tackles our spiritual well-being as well. Pretty simple, isn't it? Secondly, here's the next thing. Verses 5 to 10 is a parable which speaks to our attitude when we pray. See, how do we make sure that the Lord's Prayer doesn't become like some empty-headed mantra where people get superstitious about it, because some people do? Well, we need verses 5 to 10. Remember the neighbour in our story? He's reluctant. Who wouldn't be? Look at verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, I actually think this is a very funny story, Uh, Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is locked. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Can you hear him yelling from the bedroom? Go away! I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, isn't that great? He will surely get up and give you as much as you need. I mean, who of your neighbours, knock, knock, knock on the door, are you going to greet? I mean, if Gwen Mary did it, I'd probably greet her warmly, but the rest of you lot, probably not. (laughs) Oh, you know I'm only half joking there. Uh, but, it, but it is one of those striking pictures, isn't it? Because of the man's boldness, or my version says, shameless audacity. Is that what your Bible say? Yeah. yeah. And here is the disposition that we're to carry when we come to the Heavenly Father and ask. Here is a great encouragement for us. Verse 9. Uh, Here comes the encouragement. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now remember the context of the passage here. Uh, The context is, this is Jesus on his way to Jerusalem and he's talking to his disciples. And the kingdom, we're told, is coming in. It's arriving. And don't you think these disciples could ask for anything now and it would happen in the context of their mission and in the context of their ministry as men, we'll see later on in the book of Acts, 
who have this mission uh, that seems to be unstoppable. I think they could have asked God for anything and he would have given it to them. Such is their kingdom values and their heart for God's kingdom. And so it reminds us that our Father is not reluctant. There is not a time that is ever inconvenient for our Heavenly Father. And so when we pray, when we come to God to ask Him, He does say to come with shameless audacity, with boldness. James writes, you don't have because you don't ask. And these big promises belong to a big God. But they are also great encouragements from our Lord Jesus to be praying. Our Father loves to hear us pray. And so the invitation is to come boldly and shamelessly. Here's the third thing. We're to remember the one who, who we pray to. He tells us what it means to be a father. And so as a father, I want to be able to provide for Sophie and Thomas. I want to be able to meet their needs, whether they're sick or hungry or whatever the case might be. And spiritually as well. Let's not forget that. That's the job of every, every parent. But verse 11, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Well, who would do that? Nobody's going to do that. It's a rhetorical question. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. Nobody's going to do that. Well, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now we need to, did you see this, the great promise of verse 13? Sounds a bit harsh when he calls them evil, doesn't it? Uh, but verse 13, uh, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Again, we need to read it, this story in its context. We need to do what's called our biblical theology here. Where are we up to in the storyline? Jesus has come. Eventually he will die and rise again. And then what happens after Jesus' resurrection in the 40 days? We have the ascension. And then after the ascension, we have Pentecost. When the Spirit descends on all believers. And we stand on the other side of all those events. And so what are the disciples here when Jesus says, says this? Because in this context, Pentecost is yet to happen. And prior to Pentecost, the anointing of the Spirit, the giving of the Spirit was a very special thing. It was something applied to kings and prophets and special people for special jobs. So as the disciples hear this, don't you think this would be a massive deal to hear them say that Jesus is going to... Or God's going to give the Spirit to anyone who asks. This would have been very striking. And of course, this side of Pentecost, when God draws us and when he saves us, he also fills us, sure. But we're not to think that there's some kind of salvation two-step. Have you heard of the salvation two-step? Some people think there are two steps. Uh, it's absolute rubbish. It's not Jesus now and forgiveness now and then later you graduate and become some kind of super spirit-filled Christian later on. 
such that we have first-class Christians and second-class Christians or spiritual Christians or a-spiritual Christians. Some people take that verse and do that with it. It's not that at all. What did Galatians chapter 4 say to us? But when the time come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, and the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God also made you an heir. That's Galatians chapter 4. So in the work of salvation, all members of the Trinity play their part in our redemption and salvation, including the Holy Spirit. One transaction. On account of Jesus, we all share the status of sons because of the Son. But of course, it is right for us to ask that, God, that as God has already filled us with his Spirit, that he would continue to fill us with his Holy Spirit and that he would continue to gift us and bless us. And so it's not a second blessing, it's actually a third and fourth and fifth and sixth. There are hundreds of blessings. We have a generous Father who provides for every physical and spiritual need. And today we have good reason to bring every praise, to bring all thanks every confession, and to bring it to him. We get to say, come to our Father and show our concern for his glory, and we get to come boldly. We come to the Father who knows perfectly how to give good gifts of, to his children. Now, are you satisfied with that? Tick, tick, tick. That, is that a trick question? See, I can show you Jesus as our example and we might go, oh, that's nice, that's encouraging. And I might encourage, it might keep you going for another couple of hours, 24, 48, 72 at best, until life gets busy again and we forget. Oh, I can offer you a pattern. I can say, here's that pattern Jesus says and say, go do it. And then you'll get maybe deflated because you rarely find the time to pray and you rarely follow the pattern. And maybe you're sitting there going, well, I never follow that pattern. What kind of prayer am I? I give up. You wouldn't be alone. And after showing you the example of Jesus and then showing you the pattern of Jesus, I could tell you to be bold and shamelessly audacious because the Father wants you to be bold. But again... Well, you might feel like that's a little contrived. Mind you, it's hard to flick on boldness when you don't feel like being bold. And then after the example and the pattern and the attitude of boldness, we could land with the generosity of the Father. But I wonder if there's something missing here. I mean, have I just pulled out this text out of its context and poked our guilt a little bit and given you more to do? giving you a bit of a poke with a cattle prod, maybe. And I wonder, is it enough? I mean, I can't make you more prayerful. It's a bit like the analogy of leading the horse to water, isn't it? And isn't this subject of prayer a little bit like our talks on giving? Oh, 
if you were here for those, didn't we learn that our giving is a reflection of our love for God and it's one part of our worship of him? We're saying thank you as money departs from our pockets and we give it to our Heavenly Father for his good use and service. Isn't this topic of prayer not only like uh, the topic of giving, but a bit like outreach? And we can encourage you in the area of outreach and evangelism, but unless people delight in their God, they will never share him. Never. Never share him. This is the same for church attendance. I can encourage you to keep turning up, but at the end of the day, you're only going to come if you want to. Isn't prayer just like all of those things? So prayer is an expression of our love and dependence on our Father. It's an expression of our worship and our devotion to Him. See, this is a small passage we find in a really, really big story. A story of God, our Father, doing everything in His power. Can you see His generosity to us? His generosity, His desire to show a sinful and rebellious world, His holiness, yes, but also his enormous love and care and compassion, such as his love for us. The father who sends his son, the son who travels on his journey to Jerusalem, where the son will die our death, bear God's wrath, pay the price, shed his blood, all so we can have access to the father. The way is now opened up for us to relate to God properly as our Father. The curtain is gone. Jesus is now our perfect mediator, which in some way means you can't ever get it wrong. And this is all of his grace, all of God's grace. And doesn't that knowledge move you to a greater desire to pray? Remember Augustine, our highest good is our eternal fellowship with God. Our eternal fellowship, which is an experience now and 24 hours a day, seven days a week into the future, into eternity. And prayer is a part of that. And so the invitation, friends, is to come to him. And sometimes our prayers are answered and sure, sometimes they don't seem to be. And it can be frustrating, which is why we need God's grace. We need to anchor ourselves on God's grace. Every time we pray, may God's grace be sufficient for us. See our Father's generosity. And may we agree with the Apostle Paul that God is indeed our Father, and that on account of his Son Jesus, we are now all co-heirs. We are children too. And so his grace, therefore, is always more than enough. The Apostle Paul says that. He had unanswered prayer. Implication, you know what? God's grace has to be enough. It has to be enough. And so may his grace push us onto our knees more and more, with hearts that are desperate to pray. Amen.